A football coach in the NFL once said, there is only one thing, winning, winning. We live in a culture where winning is very important. Can you pull me down just, just a little bit? I'm getting a little ring. Winning is very important. Competition is the name of the game in business and academics and athletics. The goal always is to win. Last week we saw the World Cup soccer tournament with France against Croatia in the finals. And the goal? To win, to win. And France won again, again. We spend the fall and winter cheering on our favorite NFL team, the Packers, or Vikings, or Seahawks, where the, that may be. The goal, what is the goal? The goal is always to win, to win. It can be the NBA playoffs, the NCAA finals, the Belmont Stakes, NASCAR can be the voice. You name it. The goal is always the same. It's to win, to win. Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be a winner. And to, to many, winning is all there is. It's all there is. Reality shows, however, that if one team wins, the other team loses. That's, that happens. Winners produce losers, and of course, we've all been on both sides of that. In the world of athletics, business life, we win some and we lose some. But there is one way to win where no one loses where no one loses, a place where everybody wins. This is not some sort of mushy self-esteem exercise where no one keeps score and everyone's tied and everyone wins. But winning in a different way, a different dimension. Today we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians that uses the word win five times in four verses. Five times in four verses. But winning has to do with evangelism or winning people to Jesus Christ. Bringing people to a personal faith in Jesus. Winning people to Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, this is so important that we, I hope by the end of today, can join him in saying that winning is all there is. Winning is all there is. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9, the ninth chapter. It's on page 929 of the Bible in the rack in front of you, or it'll also be up on the projection screen. 1 Corinthians 9, and we're gonna, we're gonna read 19 through 27 today. Though I am free and be belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to, weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I, by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all winners run, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run the like the man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 
The first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians 9 are a continuation of 1 Corinthians 8. And by the way, the last two Sundays are really critical. If you have not, if you weren't here, please go online and listen to the messages, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, two critical messages that are part of a, a package. Uh, if, and if you want copies, uh, I don't usually do this, but I, we've made available the transcript of those two messages. If you want it, you can email the church office and we'll be glad to mail them out to you. 1 Corinthians 8 was about exercising freedoms and it was about stumbling blocks. It was about being responsible in our exercise of freedoms, particularly in gray areas, in the gray areas. These are areas the Bible does not address specifically or they're silent altogether. We get to chapter nine and Paul again asserts what his freedoms are and food and drink in verse four, material remuneration, verse 11, and making a living in verse 14. But Paul, as, as our example to follow, gave up those rights. Why did he give up those rights? He said, these are my rights, but I'm gonna give them up, why? Because he did not want anything, absolutely anything to get in the way of the most important mission, which was preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that he could win them to Christ. So he could win them to Christ. For Paul, winning people to Jesus was all there is, all there is. Win, what, what does win mean? What does it mean to win? In our passage today, win is used five times, and one time in verse 22, it's used with the word save. It's used with the word save. And Gordon Fee, the scholar Gordon Fee writes, the substitution of the verb save in this final clause makes it certain that the verb win in each of the five earlier clauses meant precisely that, it meant to save. It means eschatological salvation for the perishing through Christ's death and resurrection. It means saving the lost. So when he's talking about winning, he's talking about saving, saving them, winning the lost. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. We sang about, uh, Jesus gave the illustration of leaving 99 that were in the fold, 99 sheep, and he went out to find the one who was lost. Jesus is concerned about lost people as he asks us to be concerned about lost people. And he gave us, his followers, the same mission to seek and to save the lost. Saving, winning the lost. What does that all mean? What, is, what does it mean to win or to win the lost? Help them find that. We're gonna, we're gonna look at seven words today, seven words that describe winning people to Jesus Christ. Seven words, it's not exhaustive, but seven words that are represented in this passage that talk about winning people to Jesus Christ. Number one, win equals servanthood. Win e equals servanthood. In verse 19, it says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So I make myself a slave or servant to everyone. Why, for what purpose? to win as many as possible. Servanted, serving to win people to Jesus Christ. Now, how does being a servant win people to Jesus Christ? Well, the church is God's hope for the world. The Christian community is God's alternative to our broken society. We look around ourselves, our world is a mess. 
We, we don't have to look very far to realize we, got, we have a lot of problems in our society. We have broken homes and broken lives. People destroyed or severely marginalized by poor choices. Drug and alcohol addictions, pornography, sex addictions, cycles of violence. There, you look at our culture today and it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. A few years back, I, I went to court with, a, with someone to help them obtain a no-contact order. I don't spend a lot of time in court. You're probably glad to hear that. Um, but, but I went with someone to help them. They needed a no-contact order. They needed some moral support. I said, I'll go with you. And while we were waiting, this is a world I was not familiar with. It's just, it's just like this is totally out of my world. I, I was overhearing all these stories of, of pain and, and suffering because of the violent behavior of a, of a family member, a boyfriend or husband or something. And I, it, I was just blown away at hearing all this pain. See, we live such isolated, insulated lives. To, for, for the people in that court area, that courtroom, this was normal existence. This was their normal world. It was fractured. It was isolated. It was lonely. These are broken people. Isolation is the norm, especially in cities or, or large metropolitan areas. And people are looking for community. People are looking for love. People are looking for a place to belong. They need to know that we care. And how do we do that? We do that by, by serving. What kind of an environment do we live in? Somebody wrote an article not long ago entitled, They're Waving at Me. They're waving at me. And he says, every year I seem to experience an odd moment shortly after my family and I arrive at the country house that we rent in Montana. I'm driving down a back road, minding my own business, when I gradually realize that people are waving at me. They wave from their pickups and cars, barely lifting their hands off the steering wheel. You've seen that happen. At first, the gesture is unsettling. I, I wonder if they're trying to tell me my lights are on or, or, or I have a flat tire. Or perhaps it's, it's a case of mistaken identity. I've never seen most of these people. So who do they think they're waving at? Then I remember I'm not in the city anymore. And if anything distinguishes city folk from country, country folk, it's, it's waving at strangers. And soon I'm waving at everyone too. To understand the geographical nature of this custom, try a simple test. Wave from your car at strangers along a city street. You may be stared at as if you're crazy, but most likely you'll just be ignored. I also suspect if a, if a city person spent a couple of weeks on country roads, he'd be waving just as much as everybody else. Well, it illustrates a contrast between country life connectedness and urban life with isolation and loneliness. People are looking for someone who cares, someone who loves them. They're looking for someone who's a servant, someone who cares more about them more than they care about themselves. See, they will know we are Christians by what? Our moral standards? Our political activism? No, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Love. And no way is this love demonstrated better than, than servanthood, than servanthood or serving. I shared this story before. I want to share it again. There's an elderly woman in our church in Lakewood, Washington. Her name was Grace Day. Grace Day. Grace spent most of her time at home for health reasons. She didn't get out much. Grace ran our meals ministry. Our meals ministry. She would recruit and organize meals to be sent to families in need. They going through a, a health crisis, or maybe the family just had a had a baby. These are families in real need, starving because dads usually can't cook. Or they were just sending meals to families 
that just went through tough times, whatever it was. Our church was very close to Fort Lewis, which was an army post. Today it's Joint Base Lewis-McChord. We had a lot of families that lived out at Fort Lewis. One of our families had a neighbor that was right across the street from them. And in this household, the mother had cancer. And she had been admitted to Madigan Army Medical Center for extended cancer treatments. So our family, who lived across the street from this family, called Grace, just got on the phone, called Grace, and Meals Ministry kicked into gear. Every day, for several weeks, one of our volunteers brought dinner. Now, right next door to this family that was receiving meals, watching this was a non-churched family, and they watched this happen for a couple of weeks. And one day, this neighbor, seeing the meal deliveries, asked this person who was getting it, he says, who are these people? Who are these people that are bringing you meals? And the dad answered, they're, they're from the church at Lakewood. He said, oh, I didn't know you go to, went to church. He said, oh, oh we don't. He says, you, you don't know these people? No, no, our friends across the street know these people. So weird, people they don't even know, bringing meals. Odd, isn't it? Marcia, which was the wife and mother, became curious. Who would do that? So she decided to visit our church. She came for two months by herself. She just kind of sat in the back. And she discovered a community of believers who expressed genuine love. They were living out their changed lives, their lives changed by Jesus Christ by serving. Serving. One Sunday she came forward during ministry time and she told me she wanted what these people had. And she gave her life to Jesus that morning. Marcia began to bring her two children. Within one month, her children in her children's ministry gave their hearts to Jesus. The change in, in Marcia and the children was dramatic. And her husband, Lee, who was clueless about anything that was happening, observed this change in his wife and kids. And he had to go and see what was happening. He thought, this must be a cult or something. Something must be wrong. Within a three-month period, the entire family came to faith in Jesus Christ. An entire family changed by meals, by acts of love, by serving. Winning by serving. Overseen by Grace Day, essentially a shut-in carried out by volunteer cooks. Win equals servanthood. Serving is not the social gospel and it's not an end in itself. The goal of serving is always to bring people, to win people, to Jesus Christ. Number two, win equals flexibility. Win equals flexibility. Verse 20 and 21 says, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. Being free to be flexible, being free to be creative. Winning equals flexibility. Now to the Jew, says Paul became like a Jew. Those under the law as those under the law. And as we've observed in this series, the people in Corinth were in many different places. This church in Corinth was made up of people from many different backgrounds. Different places. Was Paul being a hypocrite? Sounds like he's changing his stripes, isn't it? No, no. He recognized the different cultures around him, people from different walks of life, people with different religious beliefs. 
And Paul was able to identify with many different types of people. When you look at Acts and, and Paul's work in, in the book of Acts, we find that, that he would, when he, when he uh, talked to the Jews, those who knew the Old Testament of prophecy, he tried to win them to Christ using their knowledge base of the Messiah. We get to Acts 17, and he's trying to win Greeks who have no knowledge or acknowledgement of monotheism. They don't know the Old Testament or the prophets, and he, he talks to them out of a reference point of more philosophy. To win people to Jesus, we must find common ground. Who are we relating to? Who are we relating to? When I lived and taught school in western North Dakota, I built relational bridges into a largely agrarian culture by discussing issues of concern to the local ranchers. Now, I had been in the city all my life, and so this was cross-cultural for me. What, what were they concerned about? Is the weather? We're all concerned about the weather. Okay, the weather. But then there was the price of feed. There were, there were, there were calves at calving season, rain and drought during the wheat harvest, the price of summer wheat, the price of winter wheat, price of gasoline and fertilizer, the interest rates on purchasing a new combine. Those are all the, the interests that they had. And so when I communicated with them, I talked to them about what concerned them. Now, years later, living in Seattle, if I tried to build a relationship with my dentist friend that I met at the gym and talked to him about calving season and the price of feed, he would have referred me to his friend, the psychiatrist. <laughs> See, meeting people where they are, the gospel, the message is Jesus Christ is changeless and timeless, but we earn the right to talk about it by establishing common ground, building bridges to people, establish relationship, establish credibility. And it's how we communicate, it all changes. And Paul was free to be flexible. That's why cold turkey evangelism is, it, you can, it, it happens but it doesn't happen very often because we don't know who we're talking to, we don't know how to communicate. That's why building bridges to people so that we can win them to Jesus. And it requires flexibility. Number three, win equals sacrifice. Sacrifice. Verse 22, it says, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. You've probably heard the phrase, being all things to all people. This is not some kind of selfish, hypocritical manipulation. Paul had so much concern for the weak, he was willing to sacrifice and give up his rights to win some, to save some. And many people through history of the church have made that sacrifice. One of the most well-known is the case of Nate Saint, a martyr trying to reach the Alka Indians. He and his team moved in. And in their ministry, they were martyred. They were slaughtered. But his mission was only starting because his wife and family and the other wives moved in. And they were used of God to win an entire people group to Jesus Christ, the Alka Indians. Dare to make contact, there's sacrifice, because why did he sacrifice? Because winning is all there is. Number four, winning equals, equals passion, equals passion. Verse 24 says, run in such a way to get the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. I spent seven years as a parent going to track meets. Track meets, how many of you went to track meets with your kids, anybody? Okay, a lot of you, you know what I'm doing, you know where I'm going. 
And since both Brittany and Brianna ran the 100 hurdles, which is the second race at a three-hour meet, and Brianna ran the 4 by 400 meter relay, the last race of every meet, I watched a lot of races. All of them, to be exact. I watched all of them. And we always noticed the, the physicality and the physical abilities of the athletes, those that could sprint, uh, the jumping, the throwing, the long distance. I'd help out at the pole vault. And you'd look at all the physical prowess of all these athletes. But there was an intangible element that separated winners from losers. And it wasn't physical ability. It was attitude. It was passion. A, a fierce competitiveness. A, a refuse to lose. A mental attitude. Some, some just ran for the fun of it. You know, they win or lose, they were okay. They didn't, they didn't care. But there were those that ran to win. And this was most obvious on the backstretch or at the finish line. When it comes to winning people to Jesus Christ, are we laissez-faire or is it win or lose, we're okay? Or do we have a real passion? A passion. That passion has to come from God, has to come from the Holy Spirit. You can't work it up. It has to be something that is birthed and moving inside of us by His Holy Spirit. An attitude, a motivation, a refuse to lose, a mental attitude, a passion that says winning is all there is. Because we're not talking about a medal or even a state championship here. We're talking about an eternal destiny. Eternal destiny. Where will this person live for all eternity? Win equals passion. Number five, win equals self-control. Or training, self-control or training. Paul moves on to illustrate this point. Um, athletic contests were part of the Greek culture. This, this happened in every culture that we've known. And the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games, were held once every three years in Corinth, called the Isthmian Games. And he illustrates winning in running and boxing. He talks about running uh, full out, or he talks about beating the air and not just boxing nothing. He's talking about exercising self-control. Self-control is essential to win, especially in athletic competition. If you ever watch gymnastics or diving, there has to be incredible controlled strength as they do all of those maneuvers in the middle air. They can't be out of control. In distance racing, you have to pace yourself. There has to be self-control. In basketball, you have to have finesse. Unless you're dunking the ball, then it doesn't matter. But most of us can't reach the hoop, so that's fine. It takes finesse. In football, I, I remember watching wrestlers who have a totally unique training regimen try to play basketball. They had lots of brute strength and quickness. And I just tell my wrestler friends, don't play basketball, man. Just do your wrestling, okay? I didn't mean to insult anybody, but there was a totally different skill level and skill set for wrestling than basketball. Self-control. There's self-control for athletes in eating, in exercise, training, in attitude. You can't, you can't be out of control in anger. There has to be concentration. You look at some of the, some of the sports, like any of the sports, it takes enormous, enormous concentration. Paul says live your Christian life by exercising self-control. It includes physical appetites, sexual appetites, ego, and spiritual life. Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
To win in athletic competition, self-control is a must. To win spiritually, self-control is a must. Fruit of the Spirit, spirit-controlled. Then Paul moves logically from self-control to discipline. Number six, win equals discipline. Win equals discipline. Now, if you grew up with the New American Standard or the New King James or the King James Bible, uh, it, it said, I buffet my body. And of course, there was a great theological cons controversy. It was, that, was it, I buffet my body or I buffet my body? Is it, do I beat or eat? But that's been solved. <laughs> That's been solved by the, the new. It says, I beat my body. In other words, I train my body. That's what it is. Training, bringing my body under submission. And we're in a battle. A, a flabby soldier is not going to win any battles. Those of you who served in the military, man, they, they trained you. They trained you. You look at the movies and, and the examples of Navy SEALs and, and special forces, the things they go through. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable because they know they have to be trained. Physical discipline. Our military men and women train daily with physical discipline, mental discipline, emotional discipline. And you think about Olympians, winter athletes, and skiers, skaters, bobsledders, snowboarders. They, they train all this time and their event is over in seconds or minutes. They train for years for that brief moment in time. And you ask the question, how many simple pleasures in life have they given up to have a shot at winning? to discipline themselves. What have they given up so that they can win? Takes discipline. I know a competitive swimmer who years ago, he lived in Iowa, and he would swim back and forth across a lake every day, towing a rowboat to build his strength. He would connect himself to a rowboat and he'd take off and swim. Most of us would be fortunate just to make it across the lake in the boat. Is winning important enough for discipline? We, we many times want the prize, but we don't want the price. I remember at the end of every basketball practice in high school, my basketball coach would yell, winners want it most. Winners work the hardest. And he'd say, in the final two minutes of a close game, those who work the hardest will always win. Oh, I remember that was drilled into me day after day, every practice, discipline. A famous author made a statement to a reporter when questioned about his success in writing. And he said this, he said, most people don't really want to write. They want to have written. They want all the benefits with none of the discipline and the sacrifice. When our mission, which is to make disciples, to win people to Jesus Christ, if we're gonna be effective, we must be disciplined, disciplined. We all want instant maturity. We expect to become a mature believer by osmosis. And can I be honest with you? You will never become a strong, disciplined, mature believer by attending church every Sunday. I'll say that again. You will never become a strong, disciplined, mature believer by attending church every Sunday. It helps. It helps. But we all need far more the disciplines of our faith, Bible reading, Bible study, prayer, fasting, meditation, small group discipleship, interaction, disciplines of the faith, it's, it's hard work. It is hard work. And I'd, I'd be dishonest if I just said, oh, it's just 
give your life to Jesus, and you can skate the rest of your life and go to heaven. Why do we go through all this? Why does the athlete go through all the years of sacrifice, training, and discipline? Because there's a goal. There's a goal. There's a goal. What is the goal? Number seven, the goal. Win equals goal. A goal. Verse 25 says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. An imperishable crown. What is that crown? It is eternal life for others. For others. If, if we're a believer, we already have eternal life. This is eternal life for others. For others. That others come to Jesus Christ. And the question is, is that your goal? That is the goal of this church. Winning is all there is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us examples of real life stuff. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to work in our lives. That you would envision us and anoint us, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we also have that goal. It has to come from your Holy Spirit. I just pray, God, that you, like Paul, would, would help us move forward in the whole of winning. And that we would realize the stakes, eternal destiny of people that we know. We rub shoulders with, we, we eat with, we work with, we go to school with, we, all of those things. Lord, that we would earn the right and we would be able to be all things to them so that we might win them to Jesus. And we thank you, in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?